0: Amen. Good morning. You can grab a seat. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. And today we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. We're going to start in chapter 2, work our way through parts of chapter 3 as well. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, turn, tap your way to Nehemiah chapter 2. If not, please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen. Love to give you a copy of scripture of your very own for you to take home and just read at your leisure. That's the kind of people we are. We'd love to do that for you. So, as we get back into Nehemiah, let's remember what's happening. We're going to do what we always do at Hope Church. We've got an extended series of sermons on a topic of Scripture, a book of Scripture. And so, there's a little bit of help if you know kind of what we've been talking about and where we're going. And the story of Nehemiah is the story of a guy who's got opposition on every side. He's got incredible tasks that he hopes to accomplish... But it's going to be really hard. It's going to be an uphill battle. It's going to be kind of impossible, and he's pretty singular. He's pretty lonely. Today, I want us to look at the kind of the place where that changes, where where he he gets not just his plan, but kind of his people, and they actually get to work and how they go about that work. I, I want you to see what I think is a theme biblically for how God works through his people. You have been commanded many things. Now, again, I know there are people that are visiting and and trying to figure out what's going on with Christianity, but what Christianity entails, it's it's a movement that you're joining. It's a family that you're part of. And there are house rules. There are ways that we do things. There's a place that we're headed towards. There's a problem that we see that we're all under obligation to work, to try and fix. We see that problem in ourselves, and we call the, the work to fix that. The fancy word is sanctification, but it's really just growth in godliness. We see a problem in the world around us, and Christ has called us to fix that, not by going out and being super judgmental, not by going out and really just bearing some sort of like super righteous life. He called us to go about that by introducing them to him. To make disciples in his name of all nations. And the way that we're going to go about that, the way that you and I are called to go about that is going to mirror, it's going to follow what Nehemiah is doing. He's got a set of ways that he goes about what God has called him to do. And and I want us to follow those things to the end of fixing some of those problems that we see inside and outside. So it's really going to help you. If you'll take just a minute now to think about some of the problems that you see that you would like to see changed. Are you quick to cry when it comes to what's wrong with you? If I asked you, and you're not going to cry in front of me, I get it, whatever. But if, if I asked you, what do you need God to change in your life? Would you have an answer? Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount, but blessed are the poor in spirit. He, in his teaching, he's constantly holding up the prostitute and the tax collector, people who are obviously broken. And the point is that we're all broken, at least they know it. Do you have something in you that you need God to fix If so, put that in your mind and think about it as we go through this text today. Do you have something in the world that you're dying to see change? You should. The Bible fixes your vision so that you see not only God and His holiness, you see a world in its brokenness. Jesus came and he's healing blind people and he's given hearing to deaf people and he's even taken dead people and making them alive again and he's bringing wisdom and he's bringing light. Are we, as his followers, having similar impacts in the world? Okay, that's what I'm talking about with this text today. So have some of those problems in your head and then let's jump in. Nehemiah, impossible task, danger on all sides. He's been called by God and he feels this incredible wait and desire to go back to a place that he's from but he's never been he's a a generation or or three away from the people of israel who actually lived in jerusalem he's never even seen the city but he knows that's where he's from he knows that that's his god that those are his people and when he hears that the the city is in disgrace and the walls have been broken down and the gates have burned with fire he wants he desires desperately to go back and to fix it so he goes Then, fast forward, in 52 days, despite great opposition, with the people of Israel who don't really even know him and haven't been doing much on their own, the walls are up. And the question we're asking throughout this series is, how do you go from A to B? Because we want to go and do something. We want to go and do something big that changes us and that changes the world. So how do you get... From a to B. Well, I want to emphasize what I think the text emphasizes regularly, which is Nehemiah's relationship to his magnificent God. If you're going through experiencing God with us, I've been blessed time and again. There's lots of wisdom in that series, but I've been blessed time and again by his emphasis on our relationship with God and that he's not going to short circuit that relationship. He's not going to give you a roadmap of what he wants you to do, because if he does, he knows our heart that we'll be like, great, thanks get him out of the way, and then we would just try and get after that list so that we could say we did it. And maybe we're so proud we're not even self-aware of the pride. We would just do that, not even realizing that we were being proud. Instead, the action follows the relationship. It doesn't precede it. It doesn't replace it. It says in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, if you're new to Christianity and you want to kind of know what we think, Ephesians chapter 2, those first 10 verses are a really great place to look. He goes through and he describes what we call the gospel, the process of understanding how God takes people that are far from him and brings them near to him. And he concludes this wonderful set of 10 verses by saying, "...for by grace you have been saved through faith." We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith. You just trust, you just receive. It's in your own doing. It's not by work. It's not something you do and God rewards. It's something that He does and you receive. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's no room for pride for we are his workmanship. Now, here's where a transition takes place, and this is the order that we want to have. He talks first about relationship, then workmanship. He describes you as a worker. Yesterday, we were in the backyard doing some spring cleaning, kind of getting the house in the backyard, kind of ready for the new growth that will come in the spring. And I don't know what I'm doing. But I'm trying, you know, it's my backyard, so nobody gets to judge. I just do whatever I want to do. So I'm clipping limbs and raking up, and we're going for it. And I'm thinking with my daughters about it. Like, this is what we were started as, gardeners. I'm all thumbs now, but Adam and Eve were put into a garden to work. We are created with this idea that we'll go and do good things, that work is good. We've talked about that recently. We are a workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's got this idea that the relationship is there, it's steady, it's right. And then, now he gives you these things that he's got for you to go and do. As we go through and think about what God has called you to do, in you, through you, in the world, remember that that desire for that relationship, the order of relationship before work, is crucial. Everything else falls apart if you don't get it. Then, once you do, here's what I see in Nehemiah 2 and 3. We've got to make a plan. we got to gather a people. There's P's in all these. Make a plan, gather a people, and then cultivate a passion. We've got to build a passion. Let's see where we see all that. In Nehemiah chapter 2, it starts in verse 11 with, So I went to Jerusalem and there, uh, was there for three days. This is Nehemiah. He gets permission from the king. He was the cupbearer of the king. He was at the highest of the high. And he gets the king's permission and the king's wallet, believe it or not, to go and rebuild the walls. So he goes. He went to Jerusalem. He was there for three days. And he arose in the night with just a few men. And I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But there's no room for the animal that was under me to pass. There was too much rubble. It was too broken down even for him to be able to ride his animal through. Then I went up in the night in the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or where I was, what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So the first thing he does, well, he's got to go make a plan. It makes sense. I think sometimes we have this idea that that the things we want to go and do for God just never really get started because we kind of keep waiting for God to do this supernatural jump start, for him to kind of take the first three or four steps out of our hands and just sort of force us into it. But no, God includes us even in the planning process. And Nehemiah does that. He is given a task. He goes about it. And where do you start when you have a task? Well, you first start by planning. And that's what he does. He looks at the job that he's got. He looks at the state of the walls and begins trying to figure out how he's going to go about taking the labor that's there, the materials that he's brought, and remaking the walls around Jerusalem. When I was growing up, the church I went to experienced a lot of growth very quickly. And yet, the pastors of the church, who are constantly kind of leaning on the people of the church to pay for bigger and greater sort of facilities... To maintain the growth and to to create a spot for all these people that were coming to hear the gospel. And the pastors, in order to kind of maintain that vision and keep that people moving, they had to take some pretty junky office space. It was this massive property and they were building these huge buildings. And yet, when you wanted to go see the pastor, their offices were this set of trailers. Trailers meaning like trailer park trailers. And I'm kind of a big guy, but even so, if you walked to one side of the trailer, you kind of felt the trailer go to one side. And if you walked to the other side of the trailer, it was kind of was a little bit like a pirate ship or something, like it would move kind of with you a little bit. And why? They had this plan. They had this vision. They wanted to maintain. They wanted to keep before the people. And they wanted everybody to understand this isn't about them or their pride. I sat in his office and talked with him. And he said from the King James, Proverbs 29, 18, without vision, the people perish. And he's right. If you don't have a vision, if you don't have a plan, if there's not something that you're trying to get to and a series of steps that you break down in order to try and work your way towards it, what are you doing? That's step one. Step one. And you say to me, well, I've got grand ideas, I really see a big need, and I'm all thumbs, to borrow a phrase, when it comes to planning and administration. Great! Here's step two. Gather a people. Look at Nehemiah chapter 2, down in verse 17. Then I said to the, the people, you see the trouble that we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates are burned? Come. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. You gotta have a plan, but you also have to gather a people. It's gonna be kind of crazy for you to think about this. Because we kind of have to deal with a lot of ego as we work through this concept. But God doesn't ever really call somebody and then just expect them to be by themselves. I mean, I don't know Scripture perfectly, but as I'm thinking through it, he's always bringing people around them. Yeah, there may be a primary person, there may be a primary leader, there may be a primary prophet, but there's always a group of people that are being led. God's always working with a group of people. And I think the iron that holds these two concepts together of God in you and God through you with people is the way that the law is constructed, where he says... The whole of the law can be put into these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. They're always connected. God's always going to put you around a group of people that you are also called to express your love of Him, your vision from Him to and through. And Nehemiah definitely does that. These are people that don't really know Him from Adam. These are people who have been in that city and are daunted by the enemies around, or they're just selfish and they're worried about their own pursuits. They don't really care about the glory of Jerusalem as Jerusalem. Whatever the case, can't judge them, don't know them. Whatever the case, they haven't built the walls. It's not like this great crowd of people in Nehemiah is just the final pebble that like starts the big boulder rolling. That even if the people are just dunderheads, you still have to work with people. You have to. You have to assemble a team. I love that sort of trope in movies where you have to assemble the team. And they kind of like kick into the bar room and they go and they find their old friend. And they see him. And they're like, oh, you, you, it's time. And then they do that handshake where it's like wrist to wrist. Tap. You know what I'm talking about? It's in old movies maybe. But they do that. And there's like a tiger growl in the background that they use as like a show like the power of these guys because now they're together and they're assemble the crew before they go and they do the job. That's always how God works in Scripture. He loves to do it. Look at 1 Corinthians. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7, there's a variety of gifts but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Do you understand that? It's very much assembling a crew. You're all different from each other and from me. And we all require the fullness of the variety of gifts that God has given his people. Yeah, it's on the pastors to equip the saints for the work of ministry, but it's on you. It's on you to care enough, to fight enough, to start seeing in yourself what you do okay at and what you don't do so great with, to try and position yourself in such a way that you could help out with the thing that you kind of do okay with. And it's not a perfect world, and everybody doesn't fit together perfectly, and it takes a lot of time for us to learn this. I think the church, God forgive us, at a certain sort of period in American history, was just reaping. The harvest was just crazy. And so you got like the Billy Grahams of the world, and they're just bringing them in by the sheaf. All these souls are coming to Christ. And churches kind of get built in a little bit of a different way, where you have a couple of gifted people who are able to serve massive numbers of people. And those massive numbers of people really don't have to do much per person. Because we're all just kind of riding this great wave. Well, listen, that's over. The fields are wide under harvest. That's never changed. God has many in this city. That's never changed. But culturally, you can't just fall over and the church shows up. You are going to have to work hard. Not that people in the past didn't. I'm just saying it's a totally different time and it requires a different set of skills. We are going to have to realistically, really, really depend on one another and work together to bring anything to pass. You can't just show up. If you're not a Christian yet, sure, just show up. But if you have the Holy Spirit, if this is your one Lord, yeah, we need you. We need you. Serve, sure. But more than that, we need you. What are you? And how do you get involved in this system? God delights to bring about a plurality into a unity. There's a Trinity concept behind all of this. He loves to take things that are different and sew them together. You see it throughout Scripture. I'm going to look at the very end of Scripture when it says in Revelation 21, 17 to 21... This is a description of the new Jerusalem as it's descending. So in your mind, think this is the last book of the Bible. It's telling us about what will happen at the end of all things. And so God is describing his new heaven and his new earth. In his new heaven and his new earth, here comes Jerusalem. This is the new city where the people of God are going to dwell with God forever. This is a vision. It's symbolic in some ways, but it's a vision of the perfection of our relationship with him and what that would look like in a city. And when he describes it, He describes the wall. Hey, that's what we're talking about with Nehemiah. Okay, here we go. Verse 17, the angel measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. Verse 19, and the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth christophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl, and the street uh, of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Now, for years when i've read that i've just thought pretty and moved on but i had somebody point out to me that again and again and again through revelation god is showing the fullness of his plan brought together you don't have 12 elders you have 24 elders and the reason you have 24 is because there's 12 in the old testament and 12 in the new you got 12 tribes of israel representing the people of israel you got the 12 apostles representing this new people in the new covenant that are all one people in him. you got the new Jerusalem coming down with this very specific set of jewels. If you look in the Old Testament, you find that Moses was commanded by God to build this beautiful breastplate for the high priest. And on the breastplate were jewels, 12. These 12. The people and the people. Now, what's alike and what's different? What's alike is this sort of symmetry through all of Scripture because it has one author. What's different is how much those jewels are different from one another. I'm not great with jewels. You'll notice I kind of skated with a little bit of trepidation over the pronunciation of a lot of those words. But I do know that a jasper is different from a sapphire. And a blue sapphire is different from a green emerald. And yet God sows them all together. He loves this idea, this beauty of diversity unified. Oh, man, I think you can trace this through all of Scripture, but I, I just need you to understand that this is how God does things so that if you're different from the other people around you in the church, yeah, you are different and you have the same Lord. Having the same mission and the same Lord and the same Spirit, you're called into this same work, even though you're very, very different kinds of people. And you're gonna, it's going to require a ton of humility and, and just slow, patient work together to learn how to work with other awful people. And you're awful and they're awful. And how do you all kind of slowly bring this in together? Well, the Holy Spirit does it, and it's miraculous. But it is the plan. So you've got to make a plan. you got to gather people. He wants you to love each other. This is just part of how he's going to go about that. And then, oh man, we've already talked about this, but I want you to see it again because you see it in chapter 3, and so I want to honor what God does here. You've got to cultivate a passion. you got to have a heart for this work. you got to care. You have to cultivate a passion. Now, where am I getting that? When you get into chapter 3, it's kind of just a list. Man, don't get hung up when you get in the Old Testament and you just find these lists. There's a lot of genealogy kind of lists. You know, you get into uh, Joshua. Whoa, you know, it's pretty crazy. It's all these stories, these conquerings, and you're trying to deal with just the magnitude of it. And it is an adventure. And then you get to the back half, and it's just a list of cities where the geographic sort of allotments are. Don't worry about it. Read as well as you can and keep moving. But when you can, where you can, if if you can stomach it, to just really dig in and see, there is stuff. And in chapter 3, there is stuff. He starts listing all of these people who were put in charge of building certain parts of the wall all around Jerusalem. And if you read through that list, and it's just a name and where they were building, and another group and where they were building, you actually do see some stuff. It says in verse 12, Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half of the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. It's family affair. It's a dangerous job. Not just construction is dangerous, ask Osha. No, I mean, it was a job where they had a shovel in one hand and a sword in the other. But he's got his kids with him. Why? Well, the wall is to protect the kids his heart was in that project because his heart was in his kids. It says over and over again, if you look through in verse 23, it talks about how they repaired opposite their house. And another person repaired beside his own house. Down in verse 28, repaired each one opposite his own house. Verse 29, repaired opposite his own house. Verse 30, repaired opposite his chamber. Sounds different. Same thing, his house. Why does that matter? See, Nehemiah may have done that. It may have been part of his plan to put people in construction areas, by something that they cared about, knowing that they would work harder if it was like their house that they were building a wall around. But it also may have just happened naturally. I mean, there's no reason to give Nehemiah this sort of super genius perspective in our minds. He's just a servant like we are. It could have just happened naturally. Why? Because that's the kind of thing that you would do. If you're just picking spots to build a wall, you're probably going to pick the spot that's near your house because you've got a vested interest in making sure at least that part of the wall is built pretty good. Here's the connection I want to make for you. It's not wrong for you to really have a passion for a certain group of people and to work tirelessly for those people that you love. It's not, it's not selfish for you to have a deep and abiding love for a person or a group of people and then bend all your efforts towards reaching that people. That's not wrong. You do do that for your children. You'll bleed for your kids, certainly for their physical protection. But you'll as well as bleed, even just for their development, running them around all these classes, making sure they're in the best schools, making sure they're in the best programs after school and before school, yada, yada, yada. You'll do whatever it takes. We believe in the kingdom of God that there are no grandchildren. What we mean by that is that you're not a Christian just because your parents are, you can be culturally Christian. But you have to come to Christ, you. And one day, so will your children. What will you not do to make sure that they hear the gospel and understand it? Whatever it takes. Why? Because you see them and because you love them. Expand the circle a little bit further. What would you not do to see your friends come to know Christ? If you really believe this stuff... What would you not do to see your friends come to know Jesus? Well, you bleed for them. Because you love them. Expand the circle a little bit further. I'm going to put friends before. What about your siblings and your family? What would you not do for them to hear the gospel? I know some of you have been so faithful to share this time and again, and they still reject, and it just crushes you. I'm not trying to crush you further. I'm trying to say that the passion that you have for them comes from God's heart for people. Because this is how He does things. He came to save us. He broke Himself in order to make a way of salvation for us. And it's not just because He's so magnificent. Of course, He's so magnificent. And all this is coming from His magnificence. But the way He went about it is that He put His name on us. He's redeeming his people, the people that he loves. We're his enemies, and yet he loved us. The description that he gives of it in Isaiah chapter 49 is, Sing for joy, O heavens! Exalt, O earth! Break forth, O mountains, into singing! For the Lord has comforted his people, and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. End of of the quotation marks, beginning of new. A response to that statement. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she would have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. I didn't just Google search the word walls and pick up every one that's come up in Scripture. But it does talk about walls there and much more deeply resonant for us, I think. It describes God's love for us. Why? Why did he send his son to die for us to make a way? Because he so loved the world. How do we know that he so loved us? He engraved us on his hands. This is Isaiah. This is millennia before Christ actually, no, hundreds of years before Christ actually dies. But the view is always there. God is never going to forget you. It says, I don't know if you've ever tried to read Isaiah before and just got stuck. One of the best ways to really dig in is to start in like chapter 36. You'll get three chapters of like a story and then you'll have another like 30 plus chapters of God talking about himself and his goodness and his bigness and the way that he is going to redeem his people. And just let the images that are there soak into you, just like the images you're seeing in this passage. Then when you get to the end of it, wrap around. Don't just forget the first half, but wrap around and come back through. But, but in those images, you're going to see God in his beauty towards you. He describes this image of a woman nursing her child. Now, by gosh, if you're a young mom, poor thing you got to nurse these things left, right, and center. And you're not going to forget them. They're attached. But he's saying, even if they forget their children, I won't forget you. And how do you know? How do we know? Because Christ has engraved this on his palms. After the resurrection, he appeared to the apostles. Thomas wasn't there. Later, he's catching up, and he's like, no. What? Yeah. I won't believe it. So then Jesus appears again. He tells Thomas, put your fingers in my hands. It says in Revelation, he appears as a lamb slain. He's still got these engravings. He's never going to forget us, but even if he were to, look. Some people get tattoos to remember big things. He's got holes in his hands to remember his love for you. Hey, you need to know that he loves you. But you also need to understand that you need to have that same love towards others. you got to see them. If you're going to love them, you're going to get scarred. That's what happens when you love people in a broken world. It's messy and you're messy. But God, by His grace, is going to work through that. He's going to work through that love. For His glory and for their good. Make a plan. Gather people. Cultivate A passion. Let's see if our passion problem isn't really a love problem. And let's be like Christ. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, I ask in your kindness that you would take away our blindness. Our blindness that doesn't see people around us as they are in their need, that isn't able to see people and love them, but instead, Father, it's just so selfish. I'm first on that list. I pray instead, Father, that you would give us vision to see how you see and to love how you love, so that having that great desire, having that passion, we would build, Father. We would go, we would work for your glory and the good of this city. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.